I'm Benjamin Wittes, Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare. And I'm Susan Hennessy, Managing Editor of Lawfare. You're listening to Rational Security on the ER podcast feed. For more of our columns and exclusive Lawfare content, read us at foreignpolicy.com. So the Queen of England is a day drinker. She's like a heavy day drinker. She has a cocktail before lunch, yeah. wine at lunch, yeah, and then another cocktail. I think clearly this is the secret to her success and longevity. Yeah, she's 91. Which is why. Which is why. What time is it, Shane? It's 11 o'clock. And what do we have in our glasses? <laughs> Morning drinks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the only variation at Rational Security right now is between the scotch drinkers and the bourbon drinkers. I, I am a bourbon drinker. Witticis are, are drinking bourbon. Non-witticis are drinking scotch. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. But really... W- I'd like to toast Queen Elizabeth, who shows us all how to make it to 91 That's in style. Right. Yeah, and, and, you know, yours till the ship sinks. God <laughs> save the queen. God save the queen. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Send in the Adults edition. I am Shane Harris, anxious reporter. I'm here in the Jungle Studio, day drinking with good friends. Ben Wittes. Hi, Shane. Tamara Coffin Wittes. Hi, Shane. And Quinta Dressick is joining us today. Hi, Quinta. Hello, hello. We're so, clearly also reassured by the adult who's entered the White House <laughs> that, we're, that we're drinking at 11 o'clock in the morning. Can I, can I just ask, Quinta, have you ever drunk scotch at 11 in the morning before? Well, it is, in fact, 11, 11 a.m., but no, I don't think I have drunk scotch previously before, like, the respectable hour of 5 p.m. <laughs> There's a first time for This, this is what the Trump administration has brought me to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or the Queen, whichever. This week on the podcast, Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly takes charge at the White House. Republican senators come to the defense of Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and President Trump finds himself personally entangled in that controversy over a meeting with Russians in Trump Tower. We're going to get to all of that. Um, Let's start with John Kelly, the adult, the axis of adults, as I think Eli Lake once called Kelly and Mattis and McMaster. Sigh. (laughs) Has been sent in as the new chief of staff, replacing... Uh, wait, I've lost track. Who is he replacing? Oh, Reince Priebus. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> this Scaramucci came in and then killed Reince Priebus, sort of, but then he exited stage left. We didn't uh, even have time to do this Scaramucci death watch. Scaramucci was actually the comic relief. He entered with all of the flair and brevity of the comic relief yes. character can I just, and just exited. Can I just say, speaking of death watches... Sessions Death Watch is quite protracted at this point. I think you Jeff know. Sessions is <laughs> He might outlast the rest of the cabinet. He might be resilient like the Queen. We de- we declared a Sessions Death Watch weeks and weeks ago and he's still there. So I just want to say, you know, what everyone thinks of Jeff Sessions and my enthusiasm is under control. You got to admire him for hanging on there like a sort of late stage cancer patient who just kind of, you know, won't quit. He's it's, probably drinking at 11 o'clock yeah. every day. I'm, I'm proud of him. I, I think it's it's impressive. Stubbornness as a virtue. Well, let's let's talk about John Kelly uh, going over from DHS, which, of course, creates more palace intrigue and that not suddenly there's a job opening there that maybe one Jeff Sessions might want to fill. But uh, tomorrow, let me start like kicking this to you. There was this fascinating nugget in an Associated Press story about a deal that John Kelly and Defense Secretary Mattis had made, which I think speaks many volumes, perhaps, about what's what Kelly thinks that he's walking into. Right. So, you know, the, the initial spate of Kelly enters the White House stories have all focused on the fact that this is a 
hard-nosed uh, Marine general with a reputation for strong leadership, and he's going to bring order to this chaotic White House. And, you know, it goes along with this narrative of the axis of adults that uh, that people have been harping on since the beginning of the administration. And and along with that, you know, some people expressing concern that yet again, we see a former military officer placed in a very senior role, in this case, an inherently deeply political role in the heart of the White House. Um, and in, in that context, this little tidbit in the AP story about Kelly becoming chief of staff, uh, I think was like a cold, wet slap in the face for a lot of us um, over the last few hours. It says... Mattis and Kelly agreed in the earliest weeks of Trump's presidency that one of them should remain in the United States at all times to keep tabs on the orders rapidly emerging from the White House, according to a person familiar with the discussions. So, you know, the first reaction was kind of like, what the heck are these two former generals thinking? As uh, John Podhoritz noted on Twitter, like what, in case one of them needs to carry out a coup, you know, and they, they can't both be out of the country. And, I, you know, I, I think that's an understandable first reaction. It's really discomforting that two former senior military officers, two national security cabinet secretaries feel like the two of them can't afford to leave the president alone. Uh, but I think, you know, on second reflection, at least I feel a little bit less concerned from a kind of civ mill perspective, because it's always been true, and we've talked about it on the podcast before, that the only way these national security cabinet secretaries were going to be able to effectively manage their policy zone with this volatile president who has this odd a group of advisors in the White House, especially on national security, is if they were going to build a coalition with one another. And we talked about the possibilities for a Kelly Mattis Tillerson kind of axis. Um, now, Tillerson, I think, has proven ineffective, but in a way, it's reassuring that very early on, Mattis and Kelly recognized that they would have to work together to constrain what they saw as bad policy ideas emanating from the White House. And I don't think that's necessarily about military versus civilian at all. It's just about being effective. I think, uh, first of all, I don't I don't really have deep civ mill concerns about that exchange because both were in civilian capacities at the time. And the fact that they were former generals is, I, I mean, this is a conversation that you would hope two adults in the cabinet would have, irrespective of whether they were former generals, if they were people who thought they might be able to stop the president from doing insanely stupid things. And I think that was probably the context of the conversation. Um, and uh, I do think one of the attractive things uh, about uh General Kelly going over to the White House to be in this role is the idea that the president has a permanent adult babysitter. And, um, you know, some people need that. One would hope that the president of the United States wouldn't be one of them, but that's not the case. And we know that that's not the case. And so, and we also know that, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, courtier enablers of the Reince previous variety were not effective in, uh, 
doing anything other than helping Trump be Trump, as as Scaramucci put it. And so having having somebody there who understands that the boss is dangerous and that he needs to uh, you know, that the adults can't all be out of this country at the same time, leaving him unattended, strikes me as a as a a good thing, whatever one may think else uh, elsewise of uh, of General Kelly. Great. I want to get your thoughts on this, too. But also one question I have and maybe you have a thought on this is what should we read by the fact that his first official act as chief of staff appeared to be to fire Scaramucci. I mean, you could on the one hand think, oh, the president has actually enabled him to carry out an agenda. Of course, this could be a passing moment. And, you know, two days from now, he won't have any power. But what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's that's a good anecdote to sort of demonstrate the two different themes at work here, which is on the one hand, Kelly was empowered enough to get rid of Scaramucci, apparently. On the other hand, Scaramucci's rapid uh, entrance and exit are a great demonstration of how short people's tenures tend to be in this White House. Um, and look, I mean, I think the the way the Scaramucci firing was reported was sort of, you know, the adults are here, the general is here, the Marines have come in and they're, you know, Kelly is shaping everyone up. Um, this morning, Trump tweeted about how the fake news media and Trump enemies want him to stop using social media. So look, I mean, right. it's... There's, it's good that they're imposing such discipline. Well, right, exactly. But but another another John thing Kelly is doesn't get up that early. It, look, I mean, it. I I am happy to believe that John Kelly is going to do his best to impose order on this chaos. I I don't think it is actually possible to do so. I mean, I think Ben quoted a while ago the greatest Onion video of all time. Um, to paraphrase that, it there. Trump is a beastly minotaur and no chains can bind him. So that, that it's just, it's not going to happen. Well, and I think that's precisely the point is that to the extent that you expect a former Marine general to impose a sense of order and discipline, it's going to be through a strong chain of command. You know, firing Scaramucci sends a clear signal to everybody else on the White House staff, no matter who they are, that if you want to talk to the president, you got to go through me. So he's a, he establishes a clear chain of command. Fine. There is one person who's always going to be above him in that chain of command, and that's the president of the United States. And so, you know, there's to me, there's a very hard wall of separation between the idea of a disciplined person with authority and leadership qualities imposing discipline on a chaotic organization organization, a bright line between that and be and an adult being able to constrain the toddler like inclinations of a volatile president. And, you know, in this regard, I, I think that quote about Kelly and Mattis, you know, agreeing that they wouldn't both leave the country at the same time is, you know, just like two parents would never leave a toddler alone in a room all by him or herself. Mm. Um, I think it just was, to me, very, very strong evidence of the extent to which all the people, whether they're chaos agents or order agents, all the people around President Trump see him as an out-of-control ego. Yeah, so I just to, to respond briefly to Quinta's point, I, I did not mean to say that I think uh, John Kelly is going to show up in the White House and impose order and discipline. Uh, I think the nature of the situation uh, and 
as Jim Comey would say, the nature of the person uh, resists that completely and nobody should delude themselves that they're doing they're going to be able to do that. The question is the one that Mattis and Kelly discussed sometime earlier, which is, is it better given that you have an out of control, chaotic situation caused by a totally toxic individual to have an adult who understands the problem crisply and seriously <clears throat> present in the country and able to do damage control in real time? And I think the answer to that question is it's almost certainly better to have somebody who can do damage control than somebody like Reince Priebus who will swat flies for the president, uh, quite along, literally. I think that's right. And along those lines, so – a small group of reporters got to spend some time with Kelly and Aspen in an off-the-record session and won't go into the things he said, but... The T- tell us exactly what he said. Exactly Shane. what he said. <laughs> what oh, did he shit. say in that off-the-record session? But I came away with the impression from with him that, um, and I think this is evidence in his public remarks too, that uh, A, I think he does support many of the president's policies, particularly with regards to border enforcement and immigration issues. Um, and he certainly took that very seriously from his time commanding Southern Command, and he talked publicly about that. But he also struck me as somebody who would be willing to tell the president no and to stand up to him when he thought he was wrong, but would not relish it, not because he is afraid of confrontation, but I think my sense, and he did not say this, but this is my sense of this, is that he worried what would happen if he did tell the president no. That what if the president simply didn't listen? Mm-hmm. And I think knowing now this 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 concern that he had with Mattis about being out of the country, um, I think it does speak to some degree to some real anxiety, including the fact also that the president asked him several times to take this job and Kelly turned him down uh, some number of times, speaks to a real anxiety that he probably has in the job. Not that he's afraid of firing people or butting heads or taking order. I mean, as a four-star general, he's probably fairly accustomed to that by now and probably is pretty good at it and enjoys that when it can be effective. But it's more what happens when you do say no to the boss and he says, I'm going to do it anyway. Right. Yeah. So his his anxiety is about the limits of his effectiveness. Right. right. Which as is I suppose it would with any chief of staff, but it must be magnified, I would think, in this case, right? Well, I feel like we've we're just sort of coming back to the the original question of should one serve in a high-ranking appointed position in the Trump administration? And we went through this argument with with Kelly and Mattis when they were appointed as secretaries of DHS and defense, respectively. And now we're having this argument again as Kelly sort of takes a step closer to the president that is is the mitigation of damage that you may be able to do worth it. And mm. it, I don't know. Right. So, I, I mean, I think I think the answer to that question may be very different for Mattis than for Kelly. I mean, I I think the Well, and it's the, different for a cabinet secretary who is you know, approved by the Senate and has a specific policy portfolio than it is for a chief of staff of the president right. in the White House. Is that right? But I mean, I look, I think you know, nothing terrible has happened at the Defense Department. And I think that is a very strong argument for Mattis's service mm. that, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about all kinds of scandals, all kinds of controversies, all kinds of policy disasters. None of them really involves the U.S. military. And, and I think that so, so far, so far, no, no, but look, if you've gone eight months without a disaster, 
you've done pretty well in the Trump administration. And now Kelly is a little bit more complicated because, you know, the the travel ban stuff did route principally through DHS. And, you know, he's he's got some stuff to answer for there. He's also going now to the personal staff of the president. And that's a much more dicey situation. You're not wielding executive authority yourself. And so I agree. It's it's a real question whether it makes sense to do that. All right, let's move on to our next topic. Um, I feel like this was to some degree lost a little bit in the tumult. Uh, of last week, but a number of Republican senators, Lindsey Graham, probably chief among them, uh, sent a pretty clear message to President Trump that if you try and fire Jeff Sessions as attorney general, um, you will have crossed a line. Do not expect that you will uh, get us to a point or to confirm a successor. Chuck Grassley actually saying we're all filled up here on nominations for the rest of the year. Yeah, there won't be any hearings there won't on be a new any. AG. And Lindsay, the ever poetic Lindsey Graham. There will be holy hell to pay, is what he said. That's alliterative. Um, right, exactly. Uh, and, and then Ben Sass standing up and saying, I think he was trying to say forget about it, but it came out as forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those sweet little Midwestern yeah, ears. But point, point was made and point was taken. Um, you know, I, I I sort of thought of this as as a significant moment because I think that when Trump fired Comey in Washington, he crossed a Rubicon, and we kind of entered into this boundaryless land where everyone started to wonder what does the president think is the limit of his authorities and what are people going to do to rein him in? And now we have perhaps some Republican senators starting to draw boundaries. Um, my question for you guys is: Is that the case? Are they standing up and starting to restrict this president? Or was this an easy one for them to do because it's the Senate, we have dominion over confirmations, Jeff Sessions is one of ours. Uh, so should we be reading this as sort of a, a territorial uh, raising up on the haunches or the Senate actually starting to assert itself, as John McCain said, as a co-equal branch of government? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's there been so much talk in this town since the Trump presidency began about how this is Article One time and, you know, what's it going to take for congressional Republicans finally to start to push back? And, you know, so is it the prospect, is it the public humiliation and prospect of, of firing of a guy who was one of their own? Is that, you know, really the straw that's going to break the camel's back here as opposed to all the egregious violations and abuses of authority that we've seen? Well, maybe that's what it takes, you know, it, but it's hard for me to see this as the beginning of a wave. You could cite, you could cite a couple of indicators. I mean, in addition to the, in addition to the pushback on, on uh, Trump's treatment of Sessions, there's also Lindsey Graham introducing legislation to strengthen uh, the special counsel uh, and make it harder for a president to end a probe. Um, there's, you know, Jeff Flake's new book, Senator Flake from Arizona, has a new book out, which is kind of excoriating his fellow conservatives for their abandonment of principle and their embrace of Trumpian politics. And by extension, Trump himself, there was a little excerpt from the book in Politico that's making a splash this week. So, you know, you you could draw uh, lines between these dots and say this is the beginning of a wave of Republican kind of coming to its senses. But I, I have to say I'm a little more cynical. I think this is more the Senate band of brothers thing. So, first of all, this – I think it's a good thing that people are drawing a line around Jeff Sessions and – 
Secondly, I have to confess, just at an emotional level, it makes me irate. Um, so, you know, I keep thinking of... Uh, Wait, pa- it makes you irate? irate? Why does it make you irate? Like, first they came for Comey, and I said nothing because Comey, you know, pissed me off about <laughs> Hillary Clinton's emails, and <laughs> and he's kind of a pious guy. And then they came for, you know, Bob Mueller, and I said nothing because, you know, he's... Uh, his staff has gave contributions to Democratic candidates. And then they came for Rod Rosenstein, and I said nothing because he was from Baltimore. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of Democrats there. But now they've come for Jeff Sessions and, and just fuck that. They've you come know, for like, me. It's too – that's too much. I, I just think like – Have of, you no sense uh, of decency. Right. I think like of all the people to draw a line in the sand around – you know, the fact that we have to have this fight over the rule of law over Jeff Sessions <laughs> drives me a little bit insane. That said, I think it's a little bit more than circle waggling, w- circle drawing, wagon circling around around a colleague. Um, I think part of what's happened is the accumulation of threats and firings uh, has, you know, seems to have waken a bunch of people up to the fact that this guy will, if left to his own devices, fire his way to impunity. And, you know, I, I, I don't think there's, I don't think anybody really doubts that. Uh, and so if you, you have to draw the line somewhere, uh, if unless you're going to have a situation in which we depopulate the Justice Department to protect Trump from from the Russia investigation. Um, Can't and, Trump just be attorney general? Well, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, unless you're w- kind of willing to go there, right, you know, hand install your your. He does seem to want to be his own lawyer. So maybe he should be his own attorney general. Uh, you know, unless you're willing to go there, you've got to draw the line somewhere. And Jeff Sessions, you know, you go to war with the attorney general you've got, not the attorney general you wish you <laughs> Sometimes had, literally. As, as, as Rumsfeld might have yeah. put it. I don't know. Quinta. Yeah. So I, I think it's a really interesting question because Sessions is kind of the... In insofar as there is a real body of policy preferences to Trumpism, that's Jeff Sessions. Right. Um, and so I've been watching this with real interest, not only in the Senate, but also in terms of Trump's really hardline supporters on, for example, Breitbart, to see how they looked at Trump's attacks on Sessions. Um, and somewhat interestingly, at least earlier uh, this week, I don't know if they've sort of shifted course now, but um, Breitbart was kind of siding with Sessions. Um, the the position was kind of you know like he's he's the true believer, he's our guy, he's going to implement all these all the policies we want. What on earth are you doing by fighting with him? So there's sort of an interesting. I feel like there's in the Senate there may be a dynamic where some senators are put off because he's one of them. Some are put off because the chaos is mounting and shows no sign of stopping. And then I also wonder if Trump's supporters will react poorly if he is eventually pushed out because it's a sort of split between Trumpism and Trump. So it'll actually be a really interesting test case um, to see whether there's more to this administration's support than a sort of real just cult of personality. 
I I think that's a really important point, and I like your distinction between Trumpism and Trump. I think more broadly, you know, to the extent that there's a coalition within the Republican Party on behalf of Trump that has so far held together, it is rooted in actually getting a certain set of things done um, beyond the core Trumpist policy agenda. Uh, and, And I think that part of what's happening is that more and more and more members of that coalition, whether they're in Congress or in the conservative media uh, kind of talk show space or in the grassroots, more and more of them are realizing that what this president is above all is incredibly ineffective um, and that the drama and the chaos is making him less effective, not more, that as the months go on, he's weaker, not stronger. Uh, and at a certain point, you know, it doesn't matter that he's the standard bearer. Um, in fact, it becomes a liability to the extent that the the uh, ineffectiveness is identified with him personally. Um, just going back to Kelly for a minute here, one of the things that's interesting about Kelly is not just his military background, but the amount of time he spent on the Hill. He has really good relationships on the Hill from his time as Marine liaison. And so... I'm watching, you know, just as Ryan's previous was seen as somebody who ought to be able to help advance the White House agenda on Capitol Hill. I'm watching to see whether he can turn around this incredibly counterproductive rhetoric from the White House on, you know, relations with congressional with the congressional Republican leadership. The White House came out after the health care debacle last week and said, well, they shouldn't vote on anything else until they get this done. And the Republican leadership was basically like, I'm sorry, we set our agenda not you, you know, is yet another instance of the White House trying to intrude on congressional prerogatives. And so if Kelly can kind of bring a halt to that, that could, if there is a wave, a building wave of Republican unenthusiasm um, in Congress, Kelly could help put a stop to it. I think there's something to this, too. I mean, and it seems like there's there's now every week or two brings this, you know, what is this sort of the chorus that's building the new line about Trump? And I feel like this past week, it was questioning his basic competence in the job, right? Ross that had this really great editorial. Yeah, it's amazing how people just realized <laughs> that he might be incompetent. Well, just to me, or, or not even so much competence, but just saying, you know, skill level, right? Ross Dowd had this great article or up in the times a few days ago where he sort of he used the image of a tower where he was constructing each level was another example of trump's folly in the sessions matter but the upshot of the whole thing was essentially being president is not something donald trump is very good at yeah uh and and to the point about where senators might come down on this let's read this passage i think it's maybe an interesting counterpoint to what ben was saying said trying to defenestrate sessions great use the word defenestrate uh the lone (laughs) republican senator in trump's corner during the primary campaign and a popular figure among his former Senate colleagues, will make things worse for the president on both fronts. It demonstrates a level of disloyalty that should send sane people running from Trump's service. It tells other cabinet members to get out while the getting is good and to leak and undermine like crazy on their way. And it further alienates Republican senators whom Trump needs to confirm appointees, including any Sessions replacement, and to go easy on his scandals. I mean, there's a there's Trump stepping all over Congress and sort of, you know, treating them like subordinates and not his equals in government, as McCain was talking about. And then there's just like, you really, this is a stupid way to interact with people who you need and who should naturally be in your corner. And it just... Not not a coalition builder, this president. Right. It it just, I mean, it just, just, again, I mean, I think this is now, this critique that is sort of maybe building after week is next, last week is just, wow, he maybe is not really good at this. Right. Although, why... 
Why, given the first seven months of his administration, that has taken anybody by surprise? Oh, it takes Washington forever to come around to the ideas. I wonder if some of it, honestly, it goes back to healthcare. Like, this is a bit of a a tangent for this podcast, I realize, but like the the extent to which the president has just been badgering the Senate on healthcare in like 10 different directions at once. Um, well, they've consistently struggled to do anything like I do wonder if part of it is just they're being fed up with his own inability to understand what it is that they're doing. Well, I'm sure it's very frustrating when you're trying to work with somebody and you're trying to let them know what your constraints are and what your interests are and and they're not listening. Um, but, you know, I I, I do. <laughs> I have to wonder, going back to, you know, something Ben wrote at the very, very beginning of this presidency where you said this is malevolence tempered by incompetence. Um, you know, I'm trying to figure out how how does that view marry up with your welcoming into the role of chief of staff, a guy who promises to make it a more competent administration? So, I, first of all, I don't... M- m- what I described as malevolence tempered by incompetence was the executive order on – and people have tried to make it a larger metaphor for the administration in some – So you deny that it's a larger metaphor for the administration? No, no. So I think if you're looking for the larger metaphor for the administration, it is not clear that the incompetence always tempers the malevolence. <laughs> Sometimes it exacerbates okay, it. Okay. All right. And, um, and uh, I think both malevolence and incompetence are uh, – they're warring, uh, but they, they – They're tangoing. Right. There, there, there's <laughs> like a tango. <laughs> there's also – Mike Pesca has pointed out that we should perhaps amend the phrase malevolence tempered by incompetence to include the phrase exacerbated <clears throat> by mendacity. Uh-huh. And I and so I think there's there's a inclusion of the word mendacity in there somewhere. <laughs> and as speaking well. of mendacity. <laughs> Which brings us to topic number three. <laughs> so topic number three. Uh, really interesting story last night in the Washington Post. Uh, on the flight back from the G twenty summit, when news was breaking that Donald Trump Jr. had had a meeting in Trump Tower with his representatives from Russia, Russian lawyer, however we want to phrase that. It was a little squishy in the beginning. Uh, But as this story starts developing and statements are getting ready to be made by Donald Trump Jr., uh, we learned that President Trump uh, came in and essentially overruled his advisors who wanted him to put out a statement getting ahead of the story kind of being as truthful as they possibly could, but not concealing anything so they couldn't be accused of lying. I'm sure that's exactly what they wanted to do. Well, so they say anyway, we tried to help him. They're moral people and they wanted to do the right thing. We tried to do what was best for the president. Now we're going to leak to you and tell you all about what we told him. And and it's not obvious at all from that story where where the leak came from. The deep state, of course. You, you, you couldn't, I mean, reading that story for a hundred years, you wouldn't be able to figure out uh, that <clears throat> Jared Kushner uh, and his people were behind that leak. Um, so <laughs> the statement that is put out by Donald Trump Jr. is, you know, a statement that strikes many people, I think, at the time as 
well, I should say it struck us more, I think, as more events became known about what that meeting was about as a perhaps incomplete statement. I would say a little more than incomplete. <laughs> I would say actively misleading because it names the topic of the meeting as it was just about adoption, right. which wasn't a, ca- a campaign issue. Totally not at all. It was about campaign issues, as we know now, once the email itself was leaked out. Um, adoptions is actually code for sanctions because it involves the Magnitsky Act. Um, let, me, let me ask you this, guys. There's the question, the Post raised this question of whether or not the president issuing or, ha- or writing for his son a misleading statement puts him in legal jeopardy. Um, ben, let me kick that to you. Is he in legal jeopardy for what he did? So not as such. There is uh, actually no crime of lying to the public for a politician. <laughs> it's, uh, it's too If common. it were, the prisons would be overcrowded than they already are. So in and of itself, issuing a uh, false or much less misleading statement is not uh, something that would, would create je- uh, legal jeopardy for you. Uh, that said... Uh, when you have an investigation that's pending against you that looks at questions like – that's looking at questions like obstruction of justice that go to state of mind, right? Do you have a guilty state of mind? Um, if in the middle of said investigation you uh, dictate a false or misleading statement for your son to issue publicly in order to distract attention from a breaking story or diminish the impact of a breaking story that's squarely in the center of the subject matter of the investigation. That is something that any responsible prosecutor's ears are going to perk up at. And, uh, and as you're looking at a pattern of conduct – uh, that may be obstructive or may be part of a cover-up or may be uh, otherwise inappropriate, uh, you certainly notice the heck out of uh, the president intervening from Air Force One to orchestrate a public lie. So I think one of the things I found really interesting and helpful about the Washington Post story was the way it explained um, – the difference between that view, the the sort of cold uh, analytical view, and the view of the president and those around him regarding, you know, this developing story as it was developing. Because the, the article describes them as thinking about it, really, it's just a PR problem. It's not a substantive problem. It's not a legal problem. They don't need to think about the implications. They just need to deal with the story. Um, and, and I think that that's, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's kind of, okay, well, something's breaking. How do we, you know, how do we make it go away as quickly as possible? And there are always two approaches to that. One is to come clean with everything. And the other is to try and diminish the story. And there was an argument between those two points of view. Uh, and, and the, you know, diminish the story side one. But I think it's also an example of a broader approach to govern, to the presidency that I think Trump has brought, which is that he's very focused on what's at the top of the news, what's the dominant story, who is the guy, you know, or woman for 
who's voicing his views out in public, how prominent is that person relative to him? In other words, it's all PR. It's all the narrative and it's not the substance. And we've seen him flip flop on issues over and over again just for the sake of what he thinks is a better narrative. Right. So so there's 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 a few reasons why and there's a that you may have it in front of you, but there's that astonishing uh uh, quotation in the story about, uh, you know, encapsulating how they they thought of it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the Post reporters paraphrasing some anonymous sources say, because Trump believes he is innocent, some advisors explained, he therefore does not think he is at any legal risk for a cover up. Right. And so like that is uh, there are so, so many levels at which that is false. Uh, so first, it's also the toddler at work yet again, right? So I mean, first of all, if you are, uh, if you can cover up, uh, be at risk of a cover up for things that other people may have uh, guilt, or or you can you can cover up, you can obstruct an investigation, the underlying merits of which are are dubious or non-existent, um, and so you know. But but the more the more fundamental problem is that starting with his interactions with Comey, uh, he has engaged in a pattern of behavior that any reasonable prosecutor would look at and scratch his head and wonder if this is an obstructive pattern. And in the context of that, instructing somebody to lie publicly or to shade the truth publicly, who might be a witness, by the way, um, very likely is a witness in congressional hearings, at least. Uh, that is something that can get you into a lot of trouble. Do we think that that Mueller knew about this already? Like that he'd already delved into this question of the statement and where it came from, or do you think that this news story is going to drive another? I, I think this is maybe driving it. I don't know that he would why he would necessarily know. And there were he wouldn't have thought to look into it, right? I mean, and frankly, when the statements came out, there were you know all kinds of questions about, hmm, why do these statements change in tone from time to time? And I mean, I remember even one person saying, like, uh, implying that somebody maybe had something to do with a subsequent draft, not realizing it was the president. But, um, no, I think this is probably news to news to Mueller, I would think. There's no well, reason you know, the Bible had multiple authors, too. Well, sure. <laughs> Best-selling book. Quinta. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that really struck me about the point that Tammy pointed out that he he thinks he's innocent and therefore it's he you know he can sort of do whatever he wants is um so the New York Times is uh, Maggie Haberman who's been reporting sort of really astonishing stuff on Trump recently she really needs to write like the psychobiography oh of my Donald God. Trump she's like his therapist but so mm-hmm. so she freaky. she went on the um the also excellent long form podcast recently and compared Trump to Harold with the purple crayon which I think is apt. For numerous reasons. First off, it's like he's a toddler. But second <laughs> off, there there is this element in which he sort of creates his own world and just expects everyone else to behave as he would in that situation and like behave in the world he's created instead of living in the world that everyone else lives in. So like because he thinks he's innocent, therefore nothing he does can be wrong. Right? That that like there's there's no understanding that to an investigator looking at this, that may be something that you'd want to look into. Like, there's, there's just isn't that sort of like the textbook manifestation of narcissism that you literally can't get outside your own head? 
Well, it's like, it's like the the false belief test where you like right. test whether a baby is able to understand, you know, the consciousness of others, right? Right. Right. Um, And we've talked so much today about the president as a toddler that I have to. It would be criminal not to reference Dan Dresner's uh, long, at this point, super long Twitter thread in which he has listed every time in a news article that the president's advisors describe him in toddler like terms. And it's now, I think, like over 200 which is quite that's, striking. That's pretty astonishing. Um, all right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, ben, do you want to go first? So for those who have not yet heard, uh, when a mommy cannon and a daddy cannon oh, love each other very much, uh, the cannon stork, which is called the U.S. Postal Service, uh, brings a new cannon, a new little baby cannon. And uh, last week... Um, Baby Cannon got a new sibling, uh, which I have named hashtag Baby Cannon Sibling. I know you want us all to say, aww. <laughs> I just can't feel that way about it. <laughs> Something that explodes. No, so it, in, in all uh, honesty, this uh, second Baby Cannon is uh, because of uh, former uh, Estonian president Tomas Ilvis. And... Uh, President Ilvis uh, tweeted at me the other day the very important point that if we had multiple baby cannons and they all fired simultaneously at a jar of lemonade, it would be a cannonade. Uh, And and I just thought that is something that needs to happen. So I ordered a second baby cannon. And when we have three baby cannons. Then we can have a fusillade. We will do the baby cannonade combined with this 21-gun salute. Uh, um, and so, you know, the the society of the baby cannon marches on. Very good. Uh, tomorrow, what's your object? Well, so uh, a while ago, because, you know, I'm really good at avoiding substantive work, I... Um, I had these rational security mugs made up, which each of you is uh, honored to have an example of. And I have four left. Um, and uh, and so I was thinking this weekend, okay, what's the best way to allocate this scarce and precious resource amongst our vast listenership? So here's the deal, guys. If you are... Um, a rabid enough fan of rational security that you would like to sport your very own stylish green and white rational security mug. Um, tweet at us the national security themed cocktail that you would like to consume out of said mug. Tweet it to us at RATL security uh, and we will choose the four best and ship you, your very own rational And we might even make mug. a special one on the show. Wait, but I, I think one rational security mug should go to the winner of the following contest. Email us the reason why you should win the national, <laughs> the, the last rational, like make the case for yourself that you should get the last rational security mug and we will discuss the okay, entries. Okay, we will, we will also accept mug please on Twitter, mug please and cocktail recipes, and we'll have entirely arbitrary criteria for judging. But and 
We're going to make you, this if, drink, if too. You yeah. want, and if it's it, disgusting, we'll still drink it. However, entries, we will tell you that it's en- not good. Right? Entries that are exceed Twitter length can be sent to... Uh, Benjamin.wittis at lawfareblog.com. And we, we will, uh, we will take, uh, oh, we will dis- discuss oh, these man. very seriously. We'll see if anyone really listens to this Boy, podcast. You're, you're going to get a lot of mail. <laughs> I do anyway. Uh, yeah. All right. So it's not such a change. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive on our webpage. You can follow us on Facebook and you can tweet your cocktail recipes. Uh, and hate mail to Ben at RATL Security. <laughs> Don't send him hate mail. Just send him nice things. No, I, people send who send me please. hate mail, I screenshot it with your email address visible and I tweet it. So oh. I, my that email's public, so it's not you just, a. You just engage and engage and I engage. I know you he's know? just a social media genius. <laughs> uh, whenever you download the podcast on Apple iTunes or wherever you download your favorite podcast, please leave us a nice rating and review. And once again, thanks for all of the great ratings. Um, there've been a ton lately, and we're really, really appreciative of it. We Helps love other you. People find the show, which is a great thing. Our audio engineer and guest this week, guest panelist Quinta Jurassic, the fabulous Quinta. Thank you for joining us and recording us. Always a pleasure. Uh, the show is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed this week by Lindsey Graham and the Holy Hell Chorus. Ooh. <laughs> I'd like to hear Doesn't that. that sound like Isn't it the Holy have? Hell Razors? The Holy Hell. Ooh, the Holy Hell Razors. That's oh, okay. See, I would. Holy Hell better. Chorus, I was thinking gospel, but the Holy Hell Razors. I was thinking like behind him being like, hell no. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's bluegrass. The Holy Hell Razors. The Holy Hell Razors. I yeah. like it. He would probably fit. He'd probably be okay. They, with they're performing this week at Ray's Hellburger. Oh, oh, nice. oh I'm sure Senator Graham will be there, uh, along with I'm sure she'd love to be there. Sophia Yan playing piano for that burger concert mashup, but <laughs> probably won't be coming over from China anytime too soon. But we miss you, and thank you, uh, Sophia. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Quinta Jurassic, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>